This is Michael Muth of Going Global International Interviews. We are speaking today with Bob Okabe, the founder and managing partner of RPX Group. Uh, you can find more information about his firm at rpxgroup.com. And we're talking with Bob about international finance. Uh, you can find an edited transcript of this interview either at intlalliances.com or at midwestbusiness.com. Well, thank you. Okay. Good deal. Um, how much time did you spend abroad? Well, it was mostly when I was a banker, because I was an investment banker from 88 to 99, and it would probably go over four or five times a year for a period of five or six years. So, you know, mm-hmm. I was about 20 times a year. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, what, week trips? Probably, I assume. Um, The shortest was half a day. (laughs) The longest was a week, a week and a half. Okay. Uh, The the short one was we were doing a road show for a transaction. And I flew on the overnight flight to London. And I did a seat in the morning. Took a shower at the airport. Had a series of investor meetings as soon as I got to the office. Gave a presentation at the luncheon. Was on a 3 o'clock flight back. And had a dinner in New York. That's a long day. Yeah. Yeah. How'd the dinner in New York go? Um, I wasn't the senior person there, so it was okay. I was mm-hmm. just a flag waiter. So, like that. Okay. Well, I know that you've emailed me over a few things outlining some of the international stuff that you've done, mm-hmm. so I figured might as well just jump into some of the details there. You said that you were working with multinational clients to get headquarters support and sign off for U.S. subsidiary kinds of things. I guess it would help for you to tell me a little bit more about that just to figure out why you were doing this. Sure. Uh, well, let me tell you the types of transactions they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them were with large manufacturers, most mm-hmm. of the car companies. So mm-hmm. uh, if BMW of North America wanted to do something in the United States, and these were mostly financing transactions, mm-hmm. uh, they had to coordinate with the headquarters because the global treasury and financing needs to be coordinated so that they're not out of step with what their, their currency risk is. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. financial market, being somewhat more sophisticated, mm-hmm. offered a chance to do a lot more unique transactions, which weren't necessarily in the sights of people at headquarters, whether it would be in you know, Munich or Tokyo or London or wherever. Mm-hmm. And so, excuse me, so what kinds of more sophisticated or detailed kind of transactions? Swap things? Yeah, or structured financing, securitization, mm-hmm. um, things that were much more developed in the U.S. markets than they were back then mm-hmm. in overseas markets, although the overseas markets have caught up over the last five to seven years. Mm-hmm. But, okay. you know, back in the late 80s and early 90s, there wasn't really a huge amount of experience with those types of transactions at headquarters. But they would be significant transactions. They would be in the hundreds of millions of dollars, so they were significant dollar amounts. Mm-hmm. But they, uh, there wasn't a lot of necessarily homegrown experience mm-hmm. to be able to evaluate them properly. So our process was one of facilitating and educating as well as selling. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, Okay, so what exactly were you selling when you were presenting to the headquarters for the stuff? What we were selling was, it was the education part of it was mm-hmm. uh, laying out how and why the product worked and why it would be an efficient form of financing. Um, and the selling process was why we would let people do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I mean, maybe a specific example would help so I could know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, you mentioned BMW, um, securitization, those kinds of things. Was there a particular instance that you remember that you can divulge that, you know, just so I know exactly what you're talking about? Yeah, I'd like to kind of keep client names out of it, though. Okay. Well, I mean, BMW is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of BMWs are financed. Not many people can write a ticket for $50,000 for a car. So, yeah. that's like, in order to facilitate the sales, most of the car companies have subsidiaries that you finance it. Sure. Credit, 
nature of acceptance, you know, financial services, whatever. And so they amassed a big portfolio of loans or leases. They've got a huge amount of assets to finance. And so how do you find the most efficient way to finance? Mm-hmm. So securitization over the last uh, almost 20 years has uh, proved a pretty efficient way of financing the asset. But in the early 90s, it wasn't something that had people had a lot of experience with. And in fact, at that time, in Germany, it was illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way the financial contracts between consumers and companies are constructed there, you weren't able to do this. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't anybody in the home country that has anything other than an academic experience with it, if any experience at all. Mm-hmm. And so while we were able to work with the staff here in New Jersey on uh, understanding, and because they live in the U.S. capital market, they live in this environment every day, you know, they understood what was going on, they were seeing the major U.S. companies doing it, they wanted to do it as well, they were engaging people to teach them uh, to talk about the cost. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that wasn't something that was going to be executed mm-hmm. without home country approval. So I assume the law in Germany must have changed to enable you to do this. Yeah, the law in Germany has changed, I guess, in the last eight years. It was probably in the middle, the middle 90s when it started to loosen up in the late 90s where it started to actually become reasonably easy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And... At that point, did the floodgates open because of people like you, or where has that gone since then? Um, it's expanded significantly. I don't have the statistics on how far the euro markets have expanded. Mm-hmm. You know, they've probably gone up tenfold in the last ten years, but I mm-hmm. don't have statistics to stand by that number. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, how successful were you? I think I was reasonably successful in that most of the major companies adopted it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, if we went over to my office and show you the little plastic tin stuff, it's a little behind my desk, but we were reasonably successful. Mm-hmm. And how'd you do it? In other words, you know, to what do you attribute that success? I think it's understanding two things. One is the environment in the home country mm-hmm. uh, and the difference and, and therefore the difference between the mentality in the home country and the mentality in the United States mm-hmm. but also how each company staffs uh, and because that changes the dynamic if you're working with the American subsidiary of a foreign company who for whom a senior post is a two-year rotation, mm-hmm. and every two years, everything changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are also people who end up staying, mm-hmm. and over time, frankly, they lose their connection to the home country mm-hmm. because they're not repatriated back in. They don't. They're not able to maintain those types of interpersonal relationships to help get to the sun. They often fall off the fast track. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is, and so, and so those are the two dynamics. You just need to understand I think, the cultures of the country, but also how the, com- the company staff in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, I mean, how did you learn those things? I mean, for example, at the time, I understand you were working with the big companies. Did they provide cultural training, that kind of stuff, to learn about some of the general environmental kinds of things? And how could you learn about the staffing beforehand so that you could know who you talk to, who'd be most effective to work with, and so on. I think many types of sales, whether it's products or services, are relationship sales. You build relationships with people. Um, and you start to talk to them, and you build some level of personal rapport. Mm-hmm. And if you do that in the process of building a relationship, if you don't try to sell in one meeting, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, I don't think in most countries that's the way to do things. Americans tend to want to try to sell in one meeting. It doesn't happen with Europeans, it doesn't happen with Asians. So if you go in there understanding of the process, and the first meeting will, by American standards, be an unbelievable waste of time, but by, by European or Asian standards, be a feeling out process. Mm-hmm. Um, you end up talking about things like that. 
And it's not like you're Machiavellian or anything, but it's part of the natural course of getting to know each other that information comes to come out. How long have you been doing that? Is this your first one? Uh, yeah. you know, how do you like it here? How's your family like it here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you looking forward to going back? Mm-hmm. Or, or I'm your predecessor. Sure. Um, when you're there for a transition. And that organizational culture is relatively easy to find out if you are accepting an understanding of their process of how to get to know them and stuff. Well, on the other hand, then, for the organizations you were working with, patient enough to enable you to give you enough time to get stuff done. Um, yes, because the investment banks I worked for were also multinational. So mm-hmm. we had people in Frankfurt as they had people in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So okay. understanding how things got done for our firm's success in Germany, in the U.K., in Japan, translated into dealing with those subsidiaries in the U.S. The translation wasn't complete. There was always more pressure mm-hmm. uh, to meet an American-style sales cycle. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure multinational company understands that that, that culture filters both ways. Yeah, and it's just an issue, I think. And it's kind of a juggling act or a fine line kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, we're impatient and we want to get stuff done and we're waiting for the rest of the world to catch up, but uh, you have to be patient. But to get Right, and, and having operations in other countries and having that knowledge transfer helps with that nation's process. Sure. Okay. Um, from your experience with the foreign headquarters U.S. subsidiaries, how much autonomy did these foreign companies give their U.S. subs? It depends on the company and how truly multinational they choose to be. Um, and it varies by culture. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, um, Toyota Motor in the U.S. has a has a reputation for integrating itself with the local culture. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you would see Americans in senior positions at Toyota Motor Sales USA or mm-hmm. Toyota Financial Services that in some other Asian companies you would never see anybody but a Japanese in that position. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, in other country in, in and it's so varies by country. So you have a, a place that's generally seen as a closed loop culturally, like Japan, mm-hmm. and you've got a company like Toyota who understands that. You've got a company like Sony that understands that. You've got companies that don't. Uh, it also happens in other countries. So it's, I think it's much more the perspective and the global perspective of the, of the individual company than it is a specific cultural bias. You have very integrated Japanese companies, you have very separate Japanese companies. You have very integrated German companies, you have very separate German companies. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Um, okay, now you mentioned that you needed to educate headquarters staff to support your subsidiary initiatives, and you already told me a little bit about you know, how and why things work, and then the selling was more why they should use you. Was there anything else in addition to that that you need to educate them on? There was, there's, at least in financial transactions, there's all, always an accounting issue. Mm-hmm. Um, something that gets done in the U.S. has to get consolidated into the global financial accounts of the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's often, for new transactions, a significant risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are... There are very different accounting standards globally. I mean, global accounting standards have become more transparent and more consistent. But there was a day where German companies routinely had off-the-books reserves that you didn't see. And if they had a bad year, they reversed some reserves, and magically earnings were smooth and so. And that's changing because the ability to, to cover up your bad years doesn't allow shareholders to understand the true performance of the company. But that used to happen all the time. Has that been reflected in greater stock ownership, do you think, in some of these other places? I mean, for example, if you look at Germany, 
shareholders in their public corporations and so on is far less than it is here, which in a sense gives them the luxury of being able to look longer term because they don't have to answer to people on a quarterly basis as much as we do here. And have you seen that changing that, you know, some of those market forces like wider public ownership and greater disclosure and transparency are really forcing these companies to change much? To a certain extent, yes, but I think it's also um, those structures create constraints as well as benefits. Uh, remember that companies in Germany have a management board and a supervisory board. Mm-hmm. And if you're a large company like the Daimler Chrysler or uh, uh, Siemens, you've got labor union representatives on your supervisory board. Okay. And so labor sees everything. Mm-hmm. And so that creates as many constraints, and people would argue that's contributed to the high benefit, high wage, low productivity, low productivity in Europe versus the U.S. So that's a constraint, but the, the more global companies become, the more global investments become. I mean, I'm not so sure if the individual shareholder, you know, uh, a Fidelity or a Templeton foreign firm could be one of the largest individual shareholders in a company in Germany or France. And so sure. that affects what happens versus what individuals do. I mean, individuals don't really move corporate governance to the U.S. It's the calibers of the world that do. And it's no different overseas. It's just that they, the investors who move it in the U.S. have a shorter term mentality than the investors who move it in other countries, and there are also constraints like labor participation in supervisory boards or interlocking shareholders in Japan that have mitigated that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how it is in Germany these days, but, um, you know, just cross-board membership could be kind of incestuous as well. Sure. And, um, and I'm still of the opinion we're the most transparent in the world and the rest of the world is still catching up. My personal opinion is that's still the case. Um, you know, maybe the rest of the world has cars at this point. Well, the, the gap is narrow. Mm-hmm. And it depends, it's, it's narrowed and it just depends on the country. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Um, now, you also talked about extending banking and consulting products to other countries uh, from the U.S. Were there specific products you were extending? I mean, we talked about... Yeah, this is much more, again, of a securitization example, but um, in the early 1990s, General Motors wanted to figure out they really liked securitization or they wanted to extend that to Europe. Mm-hmm. And so every investment bank in the world wanted GM's European business between Opal and Vauxhall and, and other brands that are, you know, still one of the largest in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so what we created at Lehman Brothers, which is where I was, was an interdisciplinary team with mm-hmm. product experts in the U.S. working with uh, local bankers in the country to develop a strategy to present to the company on how they should proceed. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's how we apply the lessons for the U.S. to the constraints of these European markets to produce a viable program for you. Mm-hmm. And so what worked and what didn't work? Um, what didn't work in that case was transferring sufficient knowledge to the team members in other countries to have them really push the envelope. Kind of the old saw, I would rather um, ask now and ask for forgiveness than wait for permission. Mm-hmm. And so, if you don't, sh- and, and most of the innovation in international markets in the U.S. has been driven that way. Mm-hmm. Let's try something. We need to be reasonably sure we don't step on anybody's toes. But you know, if you do get spanked, it's not irreversible. Mm-hmm. Whereas in other countries, it's kind of a well, let's wait for the ministry of finance to never say it's okay first. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. And I guess an example of something that did work. That did? Mm-hmm. Um, that, the thing is, I'm not sure you can point to a seminal event. I mean, most of my experience in cross-border selling has been in structured finance products. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that what you can see is over time, countries relaxing their rules and becoming receptive to it in the market. They're expanding that approximate tenfold over the last six years. Mm-hmm. But 
I don't think you can point to one seminal benchmark transaction executed by anybody to say that was a turning point. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a lot of close followers. There mm -hmm. tend to be a lot of close followers in financial markets. Mm -hmm. um, because one of the things that financial markets want and desire is extreme liquidity. Mm -hmm. Investors want to own something a lot of people are interested in buying. A lot of people won't be interested in buying unless there's a lot of dealers who will make a market. A lot of dealers won't make a market unless there's a lot of investment bankers pushing the transaction. So it's great to have a significant market share, but there won't be a market if you're the only player. Mm -hmm. And so there's this interesting dynamic between having there having there being enough acceptance and volume in a product to make the market liquid, but not so much to make it a cut through competitive. Mm -hmm. Well, you just, I mean, almost argued against, you know, monopoly. I mean, I guess the monopsony probably doesn't fit, but, you know, any, you can't have a monopoly if you don't have the competitors to, you know, provide liquidity in the rest of the market. Right. And the U.S. learned that in the 1980s with the junk bond market, where Jack Burnham controlled such a significant percentage of the market in tanks when everybody there happened to get indicted. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. Um, are there particular countries you were working with which were more receptive and others that might not have been as receptive? You know, I, I would say that you cannot quote this. It, it, it's kind of like the Gulf War mm -hmm. or the Iraq okay. War. The British were more, most receptive, the Germans moderately so, and the French wanted to go their own way. Okay. I mean, realistically, given that most U.S. law is derivative of English common law, codified mm -hmm. uh, at its base, it's easier to translate things from uh, the U.S. system is the U.K. system. We also have common language. Well, it's not just the law. Right. Uh, it's harder in the Napoleonic system, um, and it's harder still in kind of an extreme federal system like Germany. Mm -hmm. um, and it will also vary by political needs. I mean, if there's a crime political need, stuff gets done in any country, you know. Mm -hmm. um, the Greeks fucked it up, and most of the venues are actually finished. <laughs> True. People wouldn't have made that bet two years ago, but there was a will. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, typically, when you're taking products internationally, you have to adapt them. How much did you have to adapt the American products to these other places you were taking? Well, it was extreme because... Um, the regulatory system and the legal system and the accounting system were all constraints. So you had to modify the product to live within the legal system, the regulatory system, and the accounting system of each country, which mm -hmm. back then were very different. Mm -hmm. Now with, uh, with international accounting standards, that's mitigating somewhat. Uh, with the European Union, there's some greater alignment or understanding of, of, of legal and regulatory, but it's still not great. Yeah. And so you have to modify it significantly. So, I mean, can we use a specific example again? I mean, for securitization of, you know, auto financing stuff. Sure. In the U.S., basically what you would do is you would go down to um, literally a county courthouse and file a um, security, uh, you file a lien using a, uh, what's called a UCC or Uniform Commercial Code file. Mm -hmm. Um, back in the day in Germany, there was actually a legal requirement where you had to send a notice to the home of each borrower and tell them that you were, you were securitizing the law. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Any other examples you can think of? Um, not direct examples. I mean, there are indirect examples that I've seen clients go through in terms of uh, regulatory examples. I mean, autos are, are the best example of, you know, what's allowed. A car that can be sold in Germany can't be sold in the U.S., and a car that can be sold in the U.S. can't necessarily be sold in California. Okay. And that's a, a significant example where, where it changes. And then 
you know, there are also cultural differences. You know, you, uh, in China, GM sells cars. They're basically all Buicks. No matter what they are in other countries, they're Buicks in China. Because Buick was a big brand in China before the Communist Revolution, and now they don't. And all the Chinese leaders post-revolution drove Buicks. They were the status car. Mm-hmm. So everybody in China today remembers that. They all want Buicks. The GM will stop Buick on any number of vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Oh, I mean, there are a lot of other manufacturers that are making cars other than Buick. Right, but GM might make a Chevy and put a Buick tag on it. Uh-huh. Or Pontiac uh-huh. and put a Buick tag on it. Uh-huh. Because Buick is the brand. Mm-hmm. Right, let's go back the other way then. If you are customizing products for a specific market, how do you maintain consistency among the product of the brand internationally in the, the things that you were dealing with? Did that become an issue? It wasn't as much an issue because branding, uh, branding in financial markets doesn't have to do so much with the product, but the company that's being financed. Mm-hmm. If you think about credit rating. GE is AAA, you know, Motorola is something else, Labs mm-hmm. is something else. Everybody has a credit rating. So if you do, if you do a derivative transaction on your General Motors, it has a place, it has a brand recognition in the marketplace that is General Motors, and the credit rating goes along with General Motors. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether it's executed by the Brothers Merrill Lynch, Brothers Stanley, Citigroup, Deutsche Bank. But in that case, is there consistency that you need to maintain within GM, you know, for programs or financial security across countries? Yes, and that's what they're looking for. They're looking mm-hmm. for that consistency, especially if you're a multinational and you have to Which is why only the layman and all those other folks who are big and global can pretty much meet those needs. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like the joke from Paul Fiction, right? Where you follow a big map. France, the L'Oreal with cheese, the same product, you have to give it a different name, but the product is consistent. Mm-hmm. True. You know, there's something interesting. I don't know, have you ever seen the Big Mac Index in the economy? Yes, I have. It's a great tool. Well, they actually have a new one, the Starbucks Latte Index. I haven't kept up my subscription. How does it differ from the Big Mac Index? Uh, I guess, I mean, it, it came out once and they were talking about it kind of as a lark, but it was interesting because it, it was somewhat different, the results were somewhat different than the Big Mac in the index because the ingredients were exactly the same everywhere. You didn't have slight adaptations of the ingredients to the cultural taste. And uh, the raw products, they weren't as unique. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, even McDonald's tweaks some stuff a little bit. Right. And the cost of getting the right kind of beef for the right kind of buns can vary. Mm-hmm. But you know what? If the coffee beans are coming from Brazil or Hawaii or Colombia, they're going. It's the same whether they're going from Hawaii to France as they are from Hawaii to Brazil or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting too because. Um, Products for McDonald's or prices for McDonald's stuff, I mean, wasn't totally consistent, but it was still fairly consistent, you know, generally consistent. And, uh, interesting. Um, From your experience, how does dealing with international financial products differ from other products? Again, in the international perspective, you know, we talked about the branding a little bit. Are there any other things that are different about working with financial products internationally? As opposed to, I think the interesting thing financial instruments are kind of a hybrid between the product and the service. Mm-hmm. There's a tangible benefit to them in the number of dollars in the door that you raise or the interest rate you pay. Mm-hmm. So there's a tangible aspect to them, but they're not something you use every day, like a can opener or a pen or a phone or a car. Mm-hmm. So branding is one issue that, that, that comes into play. Another issue that comes into play is, um, you know, the, the liquidity of global markets. You know, people will try to arbitrage anything. 
So, you know, we'll buy something in one country and short it in another. We'll make it burn for that, but we'll also make a lot of money. So you need to have some level, you need to have some level of core consistency for people to be able to understand it in a way that allows them to think of it outside the home country. The financial instruments are global. So while, while a, a, a derivative transaction done in Frankfurt might have 70% of the traction to German investors, mm -hmm. so the others will execute it. Okay. So you need, to, you need to position, it's not that different than positioning a product global like a cell phone mm -hmm. or a car. You know, how different is the Toyota Camry in the U.S. versus the one in Japan versus the one that's sold in Europe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So you, you, you do have to make you, you do have to make them as similar as possible so that people will see them interchangeably mm -hmm. in the local marketplace. But they have to be distinctive enough to be able to be executed in the whole market. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it, it's just in a sense, money is money. You know, you can compare interest rates across countries and a lot of these financial things can't appear to be all that different. Yet in some ways I've got to believe that they are. That's just very yeah. So, it's depending on what degree of detail you dig into it, mm -hmm. you can uncover all those differences. But, um, you mentioned that you work with a lot of different relationship managers in different countries. Mm -hmm. How is it different working with a lot of these different folks? You know, what were some of the differences in working with them as opposed to U.S. relationship managers? I would say that there are probably, well, well, we all know that there are different norms and customs of doing business in each country. Mm -hmm. And I think that relationship managers, their actions and their strategies are a reflection of that culture. You know, I always I always used to tell young bankers now that I'm old bankers. <laughs> um, there were five ways to close an investment banker to close the sale. Mm -hmm. You were offering the best price or value. Mm -hmm. You were offering the best idea mm -hmm. or structure. Um, you were the market leader or basically could let the person sleep at night. There was some relationship reason that you would have an advantage over others. You know, now nowadays they call that um, analyst collusion. <laughs> and the fifth was, you know, how badly did the guy want to go to the Super Bowl? You know, in the U.S., you can take somebody in in, in, in capital markets, you can take somebody to the Super Bowl and you'll get a deal, whether you're the market leader or an offer in. Mm -hmm. There are other clients who, you know, you can get them on an exclusive round of golf with Tiger Woods, but if your deal is off by 100% to 1%, you're going to lose. Mm -hmm. And so that range of variability in there is, is wider I think than in most other countries, which mm -hmm. play I would say within tighter norms, I would say the more freewheeling um, social and um, economic conditions in the, in the U.S. allow you to have a wider range of uh, personalities and dynamics in, in structural relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they think of the stereotype of the Japanese salary man and apply to any industry, investment banking, and private development. Mm -hmm. um, there's a certain consistency, there's a certain similarity, there's a narrower range of extremes that you might have if you want. There used to be the uh, best beer conversion where they would have a German stand up and a really bad joke. Germans don't eat how they do beer. <laughs> Kind of comedy, I don't think most they stick. Well, they're big on like political satire kind of stuff. Yeah, they make fun of pop politicians pretty well. Yeah, because they can't get rid of them. They can get rid of politicians probably easier than they can get rid of some employees. Yeah, so that's not saying. Well, no, it's not. But it's just I think so. What are the old jokes about heaven and hell? Which one? In heaven? The police are British? The chefs are French? Oh, 
lovers are Italian, the engineers are German, and everything's done by the Swiss. Mm-hmm. In hell, the lovers are Swiss, the police are German, the engineers are French, and everything's run by the Italian. Yeah. So we got a crazy go to hell? Basically. Um, okay. Um, you also mentioned your experience with the World Bank. Mm-hmm. Is that when you went to Beirut? Yes. How did that come about? Um, somebody that I had known previously in my career, you know, the typical networking thing, mm-hmm. uh, after I left investment banking, we were just chatting, and she recommended me to the World Bank mm-hmm. uh, to work on a specific project. And, You know, again, it was a relationship call. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say, you know, there, there was competition, there were other people involved, but having that relationship helped. Well, you know, multilateral institutions like the World Bank hire people from every culture. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening, whether it's the UN or the World Bank, is that, is that the melding of cultures creates a process that is, is distinctly unique. Mm-hmm. And often when you're trying to figure out how to navigate through that relationship zone. Mm-hmm. And what came out of your project with the World Bank? Or what was the result well, of that project? Remember, the World Bank isn't in it just for the money. It's a multilateral institution. It's financed by government. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's various subsidiaries, including the International Finance Corporation, which is technically the last time it was has all beyond the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So the goal was to see whether or not um, capital market strategy could be used to increase the amount of capital uh, available to um, improve and increase the housing stock. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be one thing to give a grant to uh, a developing country to build a housing housing. Mm-hmm. It would be another thing to inject that same amount of money to the banking system and see how many mortgages the bank could write. But it might also be interesting to insert that amount of money into the capital market and create the liquidity to leverage that money. Mm-hmm. So the question at hand was, did it make sense to inject that money to a capital market system mm-hmm. with the potential to leverage that money versus the more traditional method of loaning it to the banks to build it, to make it loan it out, mm-hmm. and hire a to make money on it, but help to stimulate that kind of development of the housing stock. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you looked at that issue, what determination did you come to? Or can you divulge that? Um, you know, that's a good question. I mean, I think the determination that came out of that was that uh, it required a lot of things coming together. The more you're relying on market forces to make something happen, mm-hmm. the more consistent and transparent your markets must be. Mm-hmm. And that's hard in developing countries, and it's hard in places that don't have that history of transparency. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Do you have any particular recollections of some of the places you've worked, you know, that you stick out in your mind working in London, Munich, Paris, Tokyo, Beirut? Um, I think the, the most interesting thing is, to me, the, the way companies let outsiders into their in. in. Um, in, for example, Germany and Switzerland and Japan, there will often be floors of just meeting rooms. Mm-hmm. You won't be allowed to go where the employees are. <laughs> there will be the floor of meeting rooms with a nice reception area and they'll sit in a specific meeting room and all the meeting rooms will be clustered together. Mm-hmm. They won't be next to the work areas of the, pe- of the people. Whereas mm-hmm. you go to any large company in the U.S., oh, come up to my floor, we'll meet in my conference room. Sure. And you'll walk down the hallway and you'll see people's offices and you'll see people's desks. Yeah. Generally, it doesn't happen in a lot of places. 
It's interesting. I mean, I worked for Siemens. I guess I never really noticed whether that happened or not. I mean, but if you were part of the company, it was different. But if you were a vendor or a supplier or a service provider, mm-hmm. I mean, I've got to remember, we did a project, and we were evaluating the feasibility of you know, these electronic relays. And the thing that stuck out to me was the guy that I was working with never spoke with anyone outside the company. And we made this whole determination simply by speaking with engineers, sales and marketing guys, and so on, inside the company. And just to me, that kind of decision-making is flawed. I mean, in a way, it's just another reflection of, you know, kind of keeping internal separate from external. Mm-hmm. But it's just I never saw physically where, at the Stevens campus where I worked, that there were, you know, separate tours for meetings rooms and so on. But there might have been, because I just never really noticed. But did you ever meet with vendors, suppliers, service providers? No, I didn't. So I guess I wouldn't have had the opportunity to see anything. But as a service provider, as a mm-hmm. vendor, it's always interesting to be hearing you, you think in this little area. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Well, I, I, I turned down a job two and a half years ago to go work in Zurich for UBS. Partially because I didn't think, I thought it would take a long, long time for me to be accepted, and I didn't want to do it just for one or two years. And they weren't looking for anything for one or two years. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to go through that 10 year process of finding one of us. Well, that's partly why I left Germany. You know, I was only there for you know, a little over two years, and my German was good, and so on. After a while, I didn't think I really wanted to be one of them anyway. But that's not a different story. But that was a big challenge. You, you had to accept that. You had to want that. Well, true. I mean, I still have some friends over there who that's what they do. Um, let's move on to some of the financing stuff. Mm-hmm. Has Prairie Angels looked at any deals outside the United States? Do you know that? Yeah. Any idea why? Why not? Um, well, first of all, most early stage investments, and I'll give you a copy of a book, mm-hmm. uh, most early stage investments when you're taking that kind of risk, you want to be able to see it, smell it, touch it, look at it. The percentage of early stage investment that happens more than 90 miles from the physical location of the investor is surprisingly small. So to do something that early stage, as far away as cross-border and deal with the legal issues, first of all, there's a mentality that you wouldn't do it. But second, um, the cost involved. To invest in a startup in Japan and understand the Japanese legal system would cost more legal fees than the average of the investors like the U.N. invest. I mean, I spoke with Dave Bakeland, you might know. Uh-huh. Um, and he does it, and, and granted, he lived there for eight years. Right. Um, but he already knows how to package it. Yeah. He knows how to package it for both sides. Mm-hmm. And, as I understand it, he really acts as somebody who provides that level of assurance. He's there, he knows the people. I mean, he speaks the language. In that case, at what point do you think companies grow up where they can and do start looking cross-border for money? Or when they start getting cross-border money? Is there any kind of threshold that you can think of or, or give an example of a threshold of which you're aware of? I mean, I think there's two thresholds. People generally don't look cross-border for money until they're doing business cross-border. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the transaction cost is too high. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the other thing is I think there's a size limit. I think that once you can absorb the transaction costs, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for $250,000 angel investment, the cost of figuring out how to structure something to work in France or Switzerland or Japan would be daunting. You're going to do $100 million financing, it's what? Three basis points? Five one-hundredths of one percent? Mm-hmm. Well, so in other words, what you're saying is there are fixed costs, basically, to making the investment, if you have a bigger investment, it takes cost of a smaller percentage of Exactly. You know, it takes a certain amount of legal work to get a financing done. Mm-hmm. Well, that legal work has a, not specifically fixed, but a narrow range of variability of cost. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
know, once you absorb that cost base and it becomes a rounding error in the overall cost of the financing, then you can do it, then you can do it. Okay. And I guess working with portfolio companies, how do you suggest or recommend they approach international markets? You know, either selling perspective, sourcing perspective. I mean, do you guys make any recommendations in that regard? Well, I mean, I personally have in the past. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if Perkins has done. You, but you know, if you're if you're selling if you're selling your product abroad. It's not very different than people coming here. I mean, think about this. this is some of the, I mean, you, you've dealt with this with the Canadians. You need to find distributors. It's a distribution business. You need to find distribution partnerships and find the right people. Mm -hmm. And then over time, it might be more expensive to maintain that distributorship, but it was low cost of entry. Your initial risk was less. You didn't build out an infrastructure, hire people, do all the legal work, et cetera, and you just contracted with a distributor and you gave them a percentage. Mm -hmm. Now, over time, that percentage might end up being massive if your company grows and then you have to transition and bring it back in-house. Mm -hmm. And that transition can be expensive, but it's no different than in the, the, bio, the biotech business. You know, what, what do the Pfizer's of the world do? They wait for a drug to get to stage 2A or 2B clinical trials, and then they exorbitantly overpay for the winners rather than fund all the people at the seed stage. Why? Because there's a lot less energy to let somebody else make all the mistakes and overpay for the winners mm -hmm. than to manage the mistakes. Well, so in other words, the mistakes are a lot more expensive, even though they don't cost as much cash. Right. And so that's why distribution channels Third-party distribution channels are, are are generally a way to get into into markets, and they cost you more over time. But the cost of the short-term cost of execution and the risk involved as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you think of any examples of local companies making forays abroad or outsourcing stuff? Any that you've worked with? When I worked with a startup that was. That was that it was selling a product that was made in Taiwan. And there was significant, they had to learn significant, uh, all of the, you know, the trade barriers of how fast can something clear customs, what's an efficient order size, you know, proper lead times, what if something gets hung up on the dock. Mm -hmm. All those are issues people don't think about when importing products or sub-assemblies. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's why uh, the efficient the people, you know, it's not necessarily efficient to have everything built in Taiwan. Right? Well, sure. Was it at the time, is it still being built in Taiwan? Because I got to believe some of that's probably gone to the mainland as well. Yeah, but, it's, but in fact, it's the opposite. Really? What happens is your Dell computer, mm -hmm. final assembly in the USA, mm -hmm. all of the different components mm -hmm. may be purchased overseas. Mm -hmm. But the final assembly happens here because it's still cheaper to do the final assembly here and speed up the supply chain than it would be to have it done there at a fraction of the cost, but ship it logistics delivery. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody's supply chain works differently, though. So, I mean, it's not like everybody is doing it exactly like the other no, doing. Right, but it, and it depends on the value of the product. Yeah. You know, but look, look at what's interesting. Even in a high-value product like an automobile, Mm -hmm. Right? They just put them on boats, drive them off the boat. Mm -hmm. But efficiencies change, and now your Camry is built in Tennessee, your Accord is built in Ohio. There's a lot of different reasons for that, too, though. I mean, it's not just financial. Um, there's just. It, it's not strictly just lowest cost to manufacture kind of decision. No. But there are other dynamics in it. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is that when a market gets to a some level of maturity, there seems to be a hybrid model, whether it's a Dell computer or a car. For high value added, high price components, that obviously doesn't work for clothes. Okay. Um, but it's companies that you worked with and with others. 
how do you do due diligence on foreign partners, customers, suppliers, that kind of stuff? You have to go there. I mean, depending on what it is, sometimes you have to go there. Mm -hmm. um, I went to Taiwan, I don't know mm -hmm. He's a Taipei agent. I'm going to Shanghai and Tokyo in the fall. That's very interesting. interesting. Those are great places. Mm -hmm. Japan, and, but, you know, you went and you met with the distributors. You went out to, mm -hmm. you know, visibly late drinking, but you learned a lot. Well, um, I mean, people talk about a connected world, and I think once relationships are built internationally, mm -hmm. that's the way it's a connected world. For the rest of the world, yeah. I mean, here in the States, I think a lot of people are avoiding making personal relationships face-to-face. -face. I mean, I still think it's the best way, but a lot of people are looking for models to get around that. Really? You think so? They're trying to do that, but I'm not sure that they're succeeding. I mean, people trying to sell things based on, you know, downloading demos from their website. You know, follow up with a phone call, do a WebEx. Depending on the size of the transaction. But how many market leaders do that? I mean, remember, air, air, air travel volumes are up to pre-9-11 level. Mm -hmm. You know, what everybody agrees is a choppy economy. True. I'm not an expert, so, but just, um, I mean, especially with technology folks. And well, I think it's definitely once you, once you get to know somebody, mm -hmm. that works. Sure, I agree. I mean, that's why, I mean, I still think personal relationships are important. Whenever I can get together and meet with someone, I do. But it's like companies are giving financial disincentives to do that. Some are. Yeah, no. yeah. No, they are. That's true. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not talking about Taipei and Taiwan. What is your family background, and has that been a help or hindrance to you doing anything internationally? Uh, I'm too personal, just let me know. Yeah, I'm Japanese. Mm -hmm. um, I think it has mostly been a help. Mm -hmm. Uh, a place where it has been the biggest hindrance mm -hmm. has been in Japan. Okay. This will get me a huge amount of trouble. You can be artful about this. That would be great. Japan is a tremendously xenophobic country. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a phrase in Japan called Daijin Da, which is literally, it's a foreigner. And the uh, expat ghetto mentality in Japan mm -hmm. much stronger than most other places like this. Mm -hmm. And so be of Japanese descent, but not be Japanese in that way. I'll give you an example. In newspapers, if you are Japanese American or Japanese descent, you weren't born in Japan, mm -hmm. you're a celebrity, or you come to notoriety comes to you, mm -hmm. they spell your name differently. So in, in Japanese, well, they're meaning kanji characters. Do they well, are there corollaries with other languages? In other words, in Poland, if you're a man, your name ends in ski. If you're a woman, your name ends in ska. Yeah. Okay. So, for example, there are two characters that if you live in Japan, spell them out. Mm -hmm. If I were to, you know, if I all of a sudden were to be a major league baseball player, mm -hmm. spell my name phonetically. Mm-hmm. It should be three. Okay. They would, they would spell it phonetically, they would not use the characters along with people who have also Japanese descent to live foreign living in Japan. And what would that signify? Well, well, you're a foreigner, you're not quite real. 
true Japanese. Yeah. I mean, I was, I've been on subway trains in Japan and been scolded by old ladies who didn't realize that I was an American mm-hmm. for being a foreigner. So they were my girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I went to Japan once with a girlfriend before I got married. And I yelled at on the subway. Like, what are you doing with that show? It's not just Japan where that happens, because I'm sure you know. Yeah. So, um, okay. I don't care to So, do you speak Japanese? I tourist Japanese. Okay. By that, I can get around in a department store, hotel, airport, restaurant, taxi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can ask for directions and find that. But I can't really do that stuff. Uh-huh. So it hasn't really helped or hurt you business wise, kind of like. Because okay. I gotta believe if you could speak Japanese in Japan, that would be very helpful to you. And even maybe at your level when you're there, probably gets you more points than it would. Yes, but you have to speak Japanese, yeah. Well, yeah. Japanese, Japanese. Yeah. I mean, for you, you're probably a special case because you are Japanese out of Japan. Right. So the expectation may be greater than what you can supply. Yes. But you will find, if you've ever listened to Japanese national songs, especially men, mm-hmm. their diction is not very clear. Listen to these cats. Go to a Japanese restaurant where you know they're Japanese and listen mm-hmm. to them talk. Mm-hmm. And go find a Japanese newscast on one your 200 cable channels. And listen to the diction. Mm-hmm. So for me, not only would I have to know the language, I would have to be able to speak it in a way that, that I wasn't taught by a woman. <laughs> I'm dead serious about that. How so? What do you mean? In other words, how is it different? So the pronunciation of diction, women's diction is much clearer. Different. Like an accent. So if you speak better, you're a girly man? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty wow. Pretty much. Interesting. Huh? Did you see Boston Translation? Yes. What'd you think? Understood every single moment of it. Made perfect sense. Good. All the absurdities, like when the, the director of the TV spot is rattling on for five minutes, and then the woman just says, smile more. Have you experienced that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think from an American perspective, it was amusing. I guess the validation is probably just as funny. Yeah. But it's but it's part of a business there. People will ramble on, and you know, it's worked to my advantage. Huh? How so? Being in the U.S. headquarters of a Japanese company and two Japanese are talking, assuming that I don't know Japanese. I mean, if they look at you, they've got a... No. No, you have to remember it's a particular trait of Japanese Americans, especially whose parents or grandparents were interned. Mm-hmm. When they came out, their desire was to be very American. Mm-hmm. They held on to parts of their culture that were really internalized. Mm-hmm. Have uh, Japanese language elementary school the way you have Mexican Francais here or something like that. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't stand out. There's not a Japan town the way there are Chinatown. I, mean, I believe there is a Japanese school up on the North Shore. There is now for all of the expats. Mm-hmm. But it was created for excess and was created by the Japanese Americans. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the natural assumption would be that I didn't. That's what I speak of something else. I also did that once in Beirut. So there were other Japanese people in Beirut? No, three languages in Beirut are Arabic, English, and French. Uh-huh. Those people were talking in French, assuming that I was an American and was Japanese. And I, and so that's, that's well, good. Is your French? 
from a business and economic perspective mm -hmm. um, and the things that they have on their website. Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. Just, I mean, just the magazine itself, right? Oh, sure. You know, it's 80 pages, six devoted in the United States, and probably parts of the business and finance section. Mm -hmm. okay. They give a much better representation of what's going on in the world. Okay. So if you go to the economist website, you plug in a country, you plug in a subject in the country, you get good stuff. Okay. Although I believe you have to subscribe to get all the content. Uh, I think you can pay. I subscribe, mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I would never underestimate the people in positions or your formal position. Okay. I mean, it depends on the country. Mm -hmm. Some countries are better at it than others. So, in other words, people who work as representatives of foreign governments. Yeah, I mean, think about how much time was spent just on the, you know, on, if somebody came to you when you were at consul and asked a question and it was remotely related to what you were able to do, you'd call somebody. Call somebody out of one around that one I would. Not everybody would necessarily feel compelled to do that. That's true. Um, but you know what? It costs you nothing to try, and that's their job. If they don't do their job, that's something different. Well, it depends on how you define and see your job. And that's vastly different in that kind of role as a typical business role. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't mean to, to contradict you. I don't mean to dis, dis former colleagues and so on. It's just it's different. It, it varies right. by country, and it varies by individual, but it costs you nothing to ask. Well, sure. It costs you nothing to ask, and what you will get is not very useful, but it costs you nothing. It's surprisingly useful, and it costs you nothing. I'm working with a client, and I've been really surprised to find that U.S. government folks in Paris are very willing and helpful to help, and some folks with the French consulate here are equally willing to help, with both of which just kind of blow me away. Because I never would have thought the French on either side of the pond would be that. He'd be even well, you know, the price is right, so, right. Yeah, we call the consulate, and you'll get no help, or you'll get some help. Either way, it's free, and it's, well, yeah, and it's true. You don't hear where sometimes you, you, know, you get what you pay for, but sometimes you get what you pay for, but sometimes you get a huge amount more than you pay for. No, it's true. In the worst case, what did you pay? From a value proposition point of view, it can be a good deal. But it's just part of the difficulty is some people depend on those resources. Yeah, you can't depend on them. They're first step. Exactly. They're first step, but it's a good first step. Sure. Anything else you can think of? Cool. Thank you very much, sir. Oh my goodness.